Go ahead and open with me to Luke chapter 23, verse 50. That's where we'll be beginning today. Death has a way of raising a lot of questions for us. It, it often leaves us with a sense of incompleteness, a sense that something needs answering and finishing. And, and so we search for answers. And most often, I think, we are left with just one little word, why? Why did this happen? Why did they have to leave? Why didn't I say I love you one more time? Why didn't God do anything about it? And of course, in these moments, it feels like more often than not, our questions are met with silence. I want to tell you about one of my experiences with questions like these. The year before I graduated from ACU, I worked as an RA on campus in Edwards Hall. Uh, this is me pictured on the far left in my work uniform, uh, acting as Spider-Man. Uh, but I want to draw your attention to this young man right here in the middle of the picture. His name is uh, Chandler Williams. I want to tell you just a little bit about what made this job so wonderful and so terrible all at the same time. There, there's something about working in community alongside someone practicing ministry together in the same place that you get to live. It just creates this bond with the team that you get to work with. On March 31st, 2019, all of the RAs got a call that said report to campus as soon as you can. It was a Sunday. We had just finished church, and I was actually just finishing up lunch at Schlotzky's right off campus. So I rushed back there, and as I pull up to the dorm, I see a fire truck, an ambulance, and a handful of police cars. My stomach plummets. It turns out that Chandler, who lived just right around the corner from me, had taken his own life. He died 21 years old, almost 22. He was set to graduate from ACU in less than two months, and he just accepted a job with the Department of Justice in Hawaii, on track to become a CIA agent, his dream. He was kind, he was bullheaded, rough around the edges, but you just could not stop him from serving others. And in our shock and grief on this day, on a normal Sunday just like this one, we had no words at all other than the question, why? Why would he do this? Why didn't we know? Why didn't he come and talk to one of us? This was a miserable grieving process, I have to say. And a few months ago, we were gathered together again on the anniversary of his death, March 31st. And my good friend Darius, who also worked there, summed up what we were feeling, I think, pretty well in just one short sentence. Good people aren't supposed to die. I think that speaks extremely well to what makes death so difficult for us. It feels like a judgment, a punishment, one that good people especially are not supposed to suffer, at least not prematurely, not early in life. And I would imagine that the followers of Jesus felt about the same as they saw their leader die on that cross. As Jesus breathed his last breath, as the crowds scattered, 
as the world grew silent. I can't help but think that his remaining followers were looking up at the cross, at his lifeless body, and wondering why. This was their Messiah. Why why was he able to silence the wind and the waves, but not the crowds that were mocking him and calling for his death? Why was he able to heal blindness and paralysis, but not his own broken body? And why was he able to raise to life a young girl and Lazarus, but not able to avoid death himself? And he said he's here to bring a new kingdom, and now the world, that kingdom, has ground to a screeching halt in one of the most violent and unexpected ways possible. Why? The Messiah was supposed to do so much for them. The Messiah was supposed to restore Israel and reestablish the kingship in the name of King David. The Messiah was supposed to throw off their Roman oppressors who the Jews hated. But he certainly wasn't supposed to do this. He was not supposed to die. As N.T. Wright points out, nobody expected the Messiah to die at the hands of the pagans. He was supposed to defeat them, not to succumb to their violence. The crucifixion might have made Jesus a great martyr or sealed his career as a great prophet, but by itself, it meant that he could not have been God's anointed, the Messiah. I have to imagine that it felt like hope itself was killed on that cross that day. How much of this sounds familiar to you? How much of you spend your lives knowing in your heart of hearts that the Messiah is supposed to act a certain way and do a certain thing? The Messiah is supposed to bring about justice in the world. The Messiah is supposed to answer my prayers. The Messiah is supposed to heal the sick, and he's certainly not supposed to let good people die. There are things he's supposed to do. There are things he's not supposed to do. And there are times when we are certain that because Jesus does not meet our expectations, he surely cannot be who he claimed to be. Maybe he's not all-powerful. Maybe he's not all-loving. Maybe he doesn't care about me as much as I thought he did. There are no shortage of things that could make us think like that, and dying must certainly have felt like one of those times. Let's read about what happens immediately following Jesus' death, beginning in verse 50. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, who, though a member of the council, had not agreed to their plan and action. He came from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. Well, weren't they all? This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid it in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Try to appreciate this for a second, because I don't think I had ever really given it much thought. For three days, Jesus existed on this earth as a corpse, and nothing more. 
Imagine looking at his face. Imagine looking at Jesus, at his beat up, bloodied face with his eyes closed, the thorns still on his head, his wrists inside pierced, his legs broken, naked from the waist up. Joseph of Arimathea, for a brief time, held the lifeless corpse of the Savior of the world in his arms. No one who was looking on this broken, bloodied corpse would think that this is the Messiah. This is the Savior of the world. And you have to read this section of the story of Jesus with this in mind. We don't have any contingency plan for what to do with the murdered, soon-to-be-resurrected Messiah's body. But we do have a plan for what to do with any other old body who dies. And that's clearly what Jesus turned out to be after all, just any other body. When misery strikes, we do the only things that we know to do. We try to make things feel normal. We try to fumble our ways through an old routine. And of course, there's a certain healing process in ritual. That's why we have funerals. We get to honor the deceased and remember them together with their loved ones and begin that healing process as we pay our final respects to their life. And it seems like this is exactly what these people are doing, Joseph of Arimathea and these women who were followers of Jesus. They're going about their grief the only way they knew how. You see, the burial practices at this time really weren't that different from today. Both Jews and Romans made burial the norm. The, the difference between the two is that Rome refused to bury their executed convicts. So you have to admire this Joseph guy's guts. This could be why his name got remembered forever in the Gospels. He goes up to Pilate, a Roman ruler, and says, That criminal who you just murdered for crimes against Rome, I want his body. I want to pay my respect. Because the Jews believed that to be refused burial was a sign of a divine curse. So there was an unwritten rule amongst Jews. If you can help it, you take whatever means necessary. You do not leave a fellow Jew unburied. In fact, there are specific passages in Deuteronomy for how to bury an executed criminal who hangs on a tree, including Jesus. This man, Jesus, may not have been what they were hoping, but they still followed him. They still loved him, and they weren't going to let him be cursed in death as he was at the end of his life. You know if you've ever lost a loved one, the sharp pain that comes from that day when they pass away. But there's something about that next day when the sun comes up and the world keeps turning, that's such a cruel reminder of their absence. It kind of cements their loss. It confirms for you that this wasn't a bad dream like I was hoping it would be. It is a cruel reminder that the world will continue, even though it feels like it should be stopping completely. So don't miss the throwaway line at the very end of this chapter that's so important. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Some translations say according to their custom, their tradition. What could be more natural after this shocking 
sudden death than going back to the same Sabbath routine, trying once again to regain some sense of normalcy, surrounded by family, doing the only thing that they know to do together. But on the flip side of that coin, what could be more torturous and grueling than being in the silence of Saturday? In this rest, the wise hit so much harder with nothing to distract from them. And of course, that had to make God's silence all the more deafening. Or at least it seemed like silence. It seemed like they would never get an answer to their question of why. But what they somehow failed to realize was that Jesus had been telling them why repeatedly before his death even happened. I want to take a look at three verses that Luke gives us. Multiple times in Luke, from the mouth of Jesus himself, he answers preemptively the question of why that he knows they will have. This word for necessity, must, is used by Jesus to describe not only his resurrection, as you might expect, but his suffering and his death. The Son of Man must be killed and suffer in Luke chapter 9. The Son of Man must endure much suffering in Luke chapter 17. And the scripture must be fulfilled that he be counted among the lawless in chapter 22. These three examples, all from the mouth of Jesus, point out that Luke knows that this death was necessary. And of course, it's possible that there's actually one more reference that Luke sneaks in. Remember that the Last Supper takes place at the Jewish festival of Passover, which makes it all the more interesting that Luke sneaks this line in right before the Passover. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. That's the same word in Greek, and it seems like Luke is using this to kind of do double duty with the story he's about to tell, because not only does this lamb of the Passover need to be sacrificed for the meal, but the lamb of God needs to be sacrificed for the world. The question of why had been answered for them already. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer, to die, and to be buried. Luckily, we know what they didn't, that the story was just getting started. Let's keep reading chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. Let's stop here for just a second and talk about what's going on in their heads. The stone is rolled away and the body is gone. Resurrection is not the first conclusion that these people are coming to. I would say it's probably not even in the top five. Remember, they're not coming to check on him to see if just in case, maybe just this once, he managed to not be dead. They're not coming to make sure that they didn't make a mistake. They're coming with spices in hand to anoint the body. They're not expecting a resurrection. They're here for a funeral. I should say, resurrection was a part of the Jewish faith. They did believe that resurrection was coming, just not in this way. It was understood that the resurrection was this big event to come with a capital R, sort of like how we discuss the rapture. It was a big event all at once, at the end of days, 
And at this time, the righteous people who had died, beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way to the present, would be resurrected bodily and be a part of the new kingdom of Israel. This is why I think the disciples later in this chapter get kind of a bad rap for, belie- for not believing these women. It's not that they're overtly sexist or just don't believe them because they're women and thus they're unreliable. They don't believe them because dead people don't come back. That's not something that happens. And maybe Jesus performed a miracle or two, but dead people certainly can't raise themselves from the dead. The resurrection hadn't started yet. This isn't something that's supposed to happen. As Andy Stanley puts it, nobody expected no body. No, they they weren't thinking resurrection, not by a long shot. They were probably thinking body snatchers or robbers, or maybe Rome just changed their mind about letting him be buried with honor. Maybe they wanted to shame him some more in death. And as they're puzzling what's going on, well, things just keep getting stranger and stranger. Let's continue in verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes, stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, don't miss this why question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners, must be crucified, and on the third day must rise again. Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. Don't miss the fact that the resurrection was met first with shock, disbelief, and of course, confusion. Jesus is alive? With those three simple words, a revolution began. The world was forever changed because Jesus was alive. And pay close attention to the angel's message to these women. They reminded them of what Jesus had said himself about his own death. And it's only in light of Jesus' death that they remember Jesus' words. And that is the moment we can actually pinpoint when these women realized that there is no resurrection without death. I can't speak for everyone's pain and suffering all the time. I won't even say that your pain and suffering could be described as necessary, like Jesus's. But I do still think that there's something worth taking away from here. And that is that sometimes it is only in hindsight, after you've come through a period of mourning and grief, that you can see where Jesus was and what he was up to that whole time. Maybe Jesus isn't working how he's supposed to, but you better believe he is still working because that tomb was empty, and Jesus is alive. That's why Jesus' death is such a crucial part of this story. The death isn't included to make this a better story. 
to make it more suspenseful at the end, or even to emphasize what an underdog Jesus was. Jesus died so that he could be raised, so that sins could be conquered, and so that we could have hope when in the middle of distress. I think that Luke knows this to be true. Because remember at the very beginning of this book, he talks about the eyewitnesses that he talked to. And it's because of their witness that he set out to write an orderly account of the story of Jesus. And so far, he hasn't referenced too many of these eyewitnesses. But here, at this point in the story, he is witnessed to more than any other time, not just in resurrection, though we will get to that next week. Luke includes so many references to Jesus' death. There's the Roman centurion who looked and saw and said, surely this man was the Son of God. There was the temple being torn in two. There were people who observed him die, beating their breast in mourning. There are the women who watched him die. There was darkness falling across the land for three hours. Joseph of Arimathea held his body in his arms and took him to the tomb. And of course, the women observed from a distance where Jesus was buried. These witnesses aren't attesting to the importance of his resurrection, not yet, no. Luke is trying to say that beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus was dead. Jesus was killed. People saw that lifeless body. Why include that in what is supposed to be a celebration, a revolution? Because Luke understands what these women only came to understand later, that Jesus' death was necessary, that there is no resurrection without death. There is no Easter without Friday. And there can be no hope without first being completely and utterly hopeless. I think sometimes we misinterpret the power of the resurrection story and and how we should interact with it. The hope that we have as Christians isn't the fact that we get to skip from Friday to Sunday. The hope that we have is rooted in the fact that When we are at the height of our suffering, in the middle of Saturday, we still know that Sunday will come. And we also know that just like on that pivotal Saturday, when God seems silent or even dead, maybe he's just about ready to perform his greatest miracle yet. The resurrection redefined not just the Saturday after Jesus' death, but all future Saturdays. The women were living in preparation of Jesus' resurrection, even without knowing it, but we get to live in light of the resurrection. We can take solace in the midst of our suffering and our pain and our grief that it is never the final word that the grave, which so often feels like the end of everyone's story, is just a pit stop on the way to true resurrection and eternal life. Now this morning, you may be celebrating or you may be grieving. You may be excited to be with us today or you may have just barely dragged yourself out of bed in the morning. But wherever you are, I want to offer you encouragement. Not because Jesus will help you steer clear of pain, not even because your pain is necessary, but because we know that Sunday and the resurrection are coming. This is the hope that we have 
because of Jesus. And it's critical that we remember that this hope was achieved for us through death and through suffering. We are not the people who never mourn. We are those who mourn with hope. Whether you're mourning now, whether it will be next month or next year, my prayer is that you will see the value of Saturday. That you will have the strength and courage to await patiently your own resurrection because it's coming. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so humbled by the story that you have crafted for us. We are so humbled that you would come here to earth and die on our behalf. Not only because it's a compelling story, not only to show off your power, but because it was necessary for us and because there is no resurrection without death. God, my prayer today is that we can be people who are changed by the resurrection, that we would be people who live constantly in light of what you have accomplished on the cross and after the cross. God, I ask that we can suffer and mourn and grieve in a godly way, in a way that represents our hope and faith in the resurrection that is coming, not in a way that minimizes or skips over the grief and suffering. God, I ask for strength, I ask for endurance, and most of all, I ask for reminders of the hope that you bring as a result of new life, eternal life. Father, we pray all these things in your resurrected son's name. Amen. Join with me together as we get to experience the resurrection of the God who is stronger than death.